I guess that's how the the naysayers yeah. think we want this to go I, down. You know, I I don't really understand how things got turned around so wrong, <laughs> but uh, it's it's now coming up to about a hundred years and. Even though that was the early days of archaeology, you know, King Tut was just found, you know, there's really no excuse for not recognizing these as, as authentic. No, unless something else uh, is driving it. You know? I don't know what. Uh, I, th I think there is something else driving it. Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and one of the greatest unsolved mysteries remaining in North America, the origin of what they call the Tucson Artifacts. Many say it's not a mystery, it's a debate. Are the artifacts the product of an intricate hoax, or are they a history-changing archaeological discovery that deserves its just place in science? The latter question is slowly winning. They say it's not a hoax and that Columbus was late for the party by 700 years. By the time this episode ends, you'll be wondering in amazement how science has let this discovery remain so obscure. And no matter which side you end up on, your knowledge of American history and early Mesoamerican civilizations will be vastly enlightened. The American Southwest is one of the most famous regions of the world for the mysteries and legends it has spawned from cowboy legends like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, to stories of vast amounts of hidden gold, such as was told in our Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine episode here at 1001 Heroes, the Old West inspires dreamers and storytellers, seekers of rugged beauty, and those whose spirits are always seeking life beyond the next horizon. To some, it's just flyover country, but to others, the Old West is ghost towns, outlaws, Indians, rugged mountains, Herds of wild horses and pronghorn antelope, fast-flowing rivers, caves, starry skies at night, the sizzle and smell of steaks cooking over a crackling campfire, and always that feeling that just beyond the light of the campfire, where the darkness begins and the light ends, are long-lost secrets just waiting to be found. In North Africa and Europe, where culture goes back to biblical days, most consider the Americas to be relatively new like a newly minted copper penny, at least with respect to what they call long-term civilization. And in many respects, they're right. Our American history books for years dated European explorers only to the 15th century. And beyond that, the history books say, we were only inhabited by indigenous tribes like the Anasazi or the Inca far to the south, whose presence came and left depending upon forage, incursion, climate, and war. Explorers may have passed through, but left nothing more than a few old coins, and the rest is buried in history, they say. No one in the history books I studied was talking about early Roman or Hebrew civilizations in the Americas. Yet, things have been found. Ancient coins, relics, earthworks, petroglyphs, huge stones with strange Phoenician hieroglyphs, strange burial mounds, and, with the Tucson artifacts discovery, 
old Roman crosses that describe a once thriving civilization in southern Arizona, near Tucson. And now DNA science is beginning to link at least one Indian tribe, the Cherokee, with the ancient peoples of Carthage. That's right, Phoenicia, a nation of traders and seafarers, a nation which bordered the Mediterranean Sea along with Israel and Lebanon. Younger generations, it seems, and they can take hope, will still be finding a treasure trove of uncovered history when it comes to ancient civilizations and their travels, especially in America, although there are doubtless missing civilizations still to be discovered beneath the earth and the waters that cover the earth. When you begin to piece all these findings together, you will find that there were ancient explorers and wanderers that came here to America, forward flag-bearers of civilizations from Europe and the Mediterranean, and many of those findings have taken place in the American Southwest. A huge stone called the Las Lunas Stone with Hebrew-Roman inscriptions on it has been discovered in the desert of New Mexico, where once a river flowed that connected to the Gulf. The discovery of some very unusual artifacts near Tucson, Arizona, nearly 100 years ago, is convincing more and more serious researchers that a contingent of Roman Jews started a colony in Arizona and kept it viable for over 100 years, beginning in 775 A.D., during the reign of Charlemagne, and nearly 700 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. If it sounds too incredible to be true, or you wonder why this isn't in all the history books, it's because this hot find has been the subject of a heated disagreement, some saying it was an elaborate hoax, and others saying, we've got the real thing here. It's a good topic in which to take a deep dive so we can sort out the truth. We will fully explore both sides of this fascinating story. The Tucson artifacts, which consist of 30 artifacts, 28 of which were a combination of crosses, swords, and other symbolic lead creations, many of which were inscribed in a combination of Hebrew and Latin, the 29th item being a small engraved stone which was a memorial to a man named Theodore, and the last of which was a boulder with the Roman letter R carved on its surface, all discovered accidentally in a remote desert location near Tucson, Arizona, buried five feet underground and covered in limestone sediment called caliche. The Tucson artifact story, which we will get to in a minute, is one of America's greatest unsolved mysteries, an enigma which has been slowly sliding into the believer column as proof is outweighing accusation and disbelief. A debate that pits two opposite poles of opinion against each other. It is either an elaborate and painstaking hoax that profited nothing, or one of the greatest largely unsung archaeological discoveries on the North American continent, a discovery that rocks the history books and sets known history on its ear. And we'll go one further. The Tucson artifacts may connect a lost tribe of Roman Jews and their kings with the Toltec civilization of Mexico. According to one researcher named Donald Yates, the legendary Inca king Quetzalcoatl may well have been one of those Jewish kings. It ties in very well once you look at all the details, but we'll save that last one, a theory, for last. The Tucson artifacts are real. They are safely housed in a museum in Arizona, and no one has tried to profit or gain notoriety from them 
in any way. This is the kind of historical mystery that you and I enjoy the most, and one that is practically unknown. Some say this is mostly because to accept them is to overturn American history as we know it. Our story starts here. Donald Yates, researcher, paleographer, medieval Latin expert, and investigator, wrote in his 2014 report, Tucson Crosses and Quetzalcoatl. What would it take to unseat the belief that Columbus discovered America and the New World had no visitors or colonists before 1492? DNA evidence? Archaeological evidence? Literary evidence? Historical accounts? All those proofs but DNA are present in the so-called Tucson Crosses, and the moment everyone was waiting for occurred on December 13, 1925, 95 years ago at the time of this writing, when New Yorkers opened their Sunday morning newspaper and read a cover story about the Jewish and Christian settlement in Arizona that began in 775 A.D. and lasted until 900. The controversy has raged ever since. Many believe the Tucson crosses are fakes, but the argument isn't in the dating of the crosses and other Roman artifacts found. It's in the belief that there was no way a colony of Roman Jews could have reached Tucson, Arizona, and that there was certainly no motive for going there. It's not exactly a seaside village on the Mediterranean. This Roman settlement, which was called Terra Calalis, was located and thriving for a little more than a hundred years, in and for the most part just outside today's city of Tucson, Arizona, beginning around 775 A.D., and the story of the find goes like this. In the fall of 1924, a man named Charles Menier, who lived in Tucson, took a visiting friend on a car tour of the desert surrounding Tucson and arrived at what is called the Nine Mile Waterhole. Along the road to the Nine Mile Waterhole are the ruins of five cylindrical-shaped structures made of brick. It's all flat mesa between thick stands of mesquite and greasewood. The cylindrical brick ruins, and this was not red brick, but adobe brick made of sun-dried mud mixed with straw, which formed the remains of old kilns where lime was used for the protective plaster that was used to cover the bricks and protect them from weathering. Manier parked his car and walked up to one of the kilns. Not too many years previous, the only visitors to these kilns would have been prospectors with their burrows who would have seen little value in them or Indians because automobiles and dirt roads for them were just getting started. Manier's companion walked up with him, carrying a steel-tipped cane, and near the top of the embankment he paused to catch his breath. When he again lifted the cane, it struck something metal protruding from the wall of the embankment. That got his curiosity, and he tapped it again, hearing and feeling the distinct click of metal upon metal. In those days, Everyone carried a shovel in their car, since there were few paved roads, and cars often got into trouble in soft soil. Manier had in his truck, in addition to his car jack, a shovel and a pickaxe. Manier worked on trying to dig out the object, and it was taking him a lot longer than he anticipated, because the object was covered with a hard substance that they later determined was kalish, which is a type of limestone that grows around metal that has been buried for a long time. He kept chipping away until the object was free, 
then chipped away at the hard substance which covered the metal object, which was beginning to look like a large cross, and it was made of lead. Later they would weigh it at sixty-two pounds. Neither of them was particularly shocked at this discovery. Spanish conquistadors and Jesuit priests have been crossing through this area for years, and possibly this was the site of an old Spanish mission, although that probably would have been still standing. There was a local legend of Father Kino and his lost mission. Maybe this was it. Manir climbed further up the slope and eyed the area around for signs of a mission, but saw nothing except a partially complete dwelling, which he surmised must have been that of Thomas Bent, another Tucson native who was homesteading out there and whom Manir knew personally. A few days later, Manir took the cross to Bent, who was mildly curious, thinking it was probably Jesuit, but for one thing, it was made of lead, which would have been highly unusual. With Manir's help, Bent began a more thorough cleaning of the relic, and it was then that the two men made an amazing discovery. Instead of one cross, there were two, of identical design, and fastened together with lead rivets. Carefully, Bent pried them apart. The inside of the crosses was flat, and each side was coated with a wax-like substance. A piece of wax had fallen away when they separated the crosses, revealing what appeared to be an inscription of some sort. Both of the men then began scraping away the wax on both the horizontal and vertical sections of the crosses, and that revealed writings which neither of them could cipher. A few days later, Bent took the crosses to the University of Arizona, where the language was identified as a form of Latin by Dr. Frank H. Fowler, and he translated the inscriptions as telling this story. In the year 775 A.D., a fleet of ships carrying about 700 Roman men and women under the leadership of Theodorus the Renowned set sail from Rome, sailed through the Straits of Hercules, and immediately ran into a series of heavy storms. When the storm subsided, there was no sight of land, and the ships that still floated sailed together for many weeks before land was sighted. The survivors abandoned their ships as soon as they found land and set off in a northwesterly direction, this being a journey that was to take many weeks and during which they were threatened continually by wild terrain, wild natives, and wild animals. Eventually the survivors reached a warm desert area and it was here that their leader Theodorus decided to settle and build a city named Terra Calalus. In the ensuing months, Indians they called Toltezus were captured and forced into slavery. But after 14 years, those slaves revolted and killed Theodorus. The survivors rebuilt Terracalalus, this time under the leadership of a man called Jacobus, and again they captured Indian slaves and used them for work. Jacobus was followed by Israel, then seven more generations of Israels, and their rule was 125 years. Not having learned their lesson the first or second time around, this settlement was again set upon with a slave revolt, and it was Israel the seventh who, when his battle weapon was shattered by a stone axe, and sensing that their days were numbered, ordered that the story of Terracalalus be written upon a lead cross that they called the Great Cross. A story that begins like this. To the memory of the Romans, Britain and Albion's Jacob, to that second A. Asius, Theodore, and to Israel in the same province in Gaul, consuls of mighty cities with 700 soldiers, A.D. 800, January 1.
We are transports on the sea. Kalelis is terra incognita. The Toltec governor was a king ruling widely over the peoples. And on it continued. It sounded like a tale out of Bullfinch's mythology. Bent and Fowler were skeptical. Carl Rupert of the Arizona State Museum was perplexed. He accompanied them back to the site under the promise of secrecy to protect the find, and this time with more digging tools. Digging carefully under the slope of the barranca, they uncovered a large circular piece of metal on which a Roman head was engraved. The cross and the Roman head were taken back and secured safely in Bent's safe until they could get a hold of a higher authority, who, as it turned out, was Dr. Byron Cummings, a leading archaeologist nationally who was currently working in Mexico. I don't have the advantage of pictures here to show you, but I will leave a link to the collection of artifacts in the show notes and place some pictures at 1001 Heroes at Facebook. When you see these, you will very likely reach the conclusion that someone spent months creating these items and inscribing them, wanting the story of their settlement to survive. After weeks of waiting, Cummings arrived, and he too was nonplussed. He immediately organized a small dig in the area from which the two artifacts had come. Bent had kept quiet about the find, and the secrecy continued under the direction of Dr. Cummings, with Bent paying for the few laborers and they being sworn to secrecy. During the first few months of the dig, 27 artifacts were discovered. These consisted of additional lead crosses, nine swords of ancient Latin design, a crescent-shaped cross, a labrum, two Nehustans, and I'll tell you what those are in a moment, and the engraved Roman head, which was their second find. A Nehushtan, and those of you who are Dungeons & Dragons fans, just think of the bronze serpent. A Nehushtan is a serpent on a pole, important to Hebrew mythology, first found in the book of Numbers. A pole with a serpent which God told Moses to erect so that the Israelites who saw it would be protected from dying from snake bites, those snakes being fiery serpents which were sent to punish them. A labrum was a Christ-centered military standard, first adopted by Roman Emperor Constantine, the purpose of which was to protect them in battle. Many of the relics found bore inscriptions, but curiously, in addition to the Latin, several words of Hebrew were included. Assays and analysis were made of the metal. All but two were composed of a natural alloy of local origin containing lead and antimony, with traces of tin, gold, and silver. The two exceptions, both showing exceptional workmanship, were made of copper similar to the copper ore found in Arizona. Eventually, Cummings shared this find with the scientific community and carefully submitted the samples to testing of all types. They tested for radioactivity. There was none. Carbon-14 testing wasn't available at that time, but that wouldn't have mattered because there was no living strata like wood or bone or organic matter attached to the objects. The objects themselves obviously showed antiquity, and they were removed from a deep strata of earth which had allowed them to be encrusted within a lower layer of earth existing beneath the sand. The really intriguing factor was the mixture of Hebrew throughout the Latin inscriptions, and on one artifact, a knowledge of Freemasonry was shown by a square and a compass design. The story on the giant cross told of their conquering a Toltec city called Rhoda, in which they expelled the king and captured over 700 slaves. 
they also record an earthquake of some magnitude, and that's been documented as actually having occurred in 895 A.D. I'm going to take a moment here to say what an incredible find these men had made and how they must have mentally tried to tamp down their enthusiasm for the magnitude of this history-changing discovery. A Roman settlement, likely containing Roman Jews, possibly the lost tribe of Israel? How would this be received by the scientific community? They were about to find out. When Dean Byron Cummings, museum director, took some of the Tucson artifacts to the Smithsonian, they were summarily dismissed by various authorities, labeled as transparent fakes, the poorest of forgeries, and obvious frauds. Dr. E. C. Gotzinger of the California Jewish Review claimed that they were fakes planted to be discovered by the followers of Joseph Smith, which was the same rationale used to describe Hebrew artifacts discovered in present-day Minnesota. Both locations, strangely enough, far from the paths of any of Joseph Smith's people heading for Utah. An attorney who had never laid eyes upon the artifacts claimed they were fakes planted by some practical joker. He inferred that the integrity of the faculty was compromised by allowing their names to be attached to the discovery. After news of the rejections was reported in Tucson, a rancher stepped forward to claim that a Mexican cowboy sculptor named Timolcho had made the pieces but take note that this claim was discredited within weeks of it being made. In response to the pressure created by disclaimers, Arizona officials got weak in the knees, suspended all research, and returned the artifacts to the finder's family, who were the legitimate owners. The artifacts were basically forgotten until Thomas Bent Jr. brought them to the Arizona Historical Society Museum, which displayed them beginning in 1994. Bent teamed with Scott Wolter for an excellent video titled America Unearthed that documents Wolter's visit to the dig site and the old Yuma mine about six miles away, the mine that produced the lead for the artifacts over 1,000 years ago. Wolter is an archaeologist and Paleo-Hebrew language expert, and the video, which we provide a link to in our show notes, is excellent. Another stalwart defender of the Tucson artifacts is Donald Yates, Ph.D., author of Merchant Adventurer Kings of Rhoda, The Lost World of the Tucson Artifacts. Like many contemporaries, Yates, with a background in Paleo-Latin writings, a deep education in medieval history, and someone who has visited the site, studied and translated all the inscription on those artifacts, and knows the history that brought these men to Terracalalus, has been involved in area excavations that have unearthed the city that housed this early civilization, can offer very solid proof that these artifacts were not forgeries, that they are indeed genuine, and that a Roman, Hebrew, Toltec civilization founded and flourished, at least for a hundred years, at this site in Arizona. Try and see the map as it was in the year 775 A.D. There were no United States, no states, no lines, just an unknown shape somewhere between the Atlantic and the Pacific that included everything from Mexico up through Canada. Civilizations were appearing, flourishing, and being conquered in the land we now know as Mexico. The land we know to be Arizona today would have been a prime target for mineral hunters of gold, turquoise, and other rare items that made excellent trade items with early ships that had reached the coast of Mexico. The center of the civilization defined as Teotihuacan is located about 25 miles from Mexico City. 
its imposing Pyramid of the Sun and Pyramid of the Moon are well-known challenges for tourists to climb. But much is unknown about the city and its inhabitants, including their ethnic origin, which is why they are simply called Teotihuacanos. Yet this was one of the largest urban centers in the world when it was at its peak, and its influence reached throughout Mesoamerica. After the fall of Teotihuacan, around 700 A.D., the Toltecs gained dominance of central Mexico. Their capital city was Tula, north of Mexico City in Hidalgo State. The statues of Atlantes, or warriors at the site, are evidence of the warlike culture characteristic of the Toltecs. According to legend, there was a conflict between followers of the god Tetzcatlipoca and those of the god Quetzalcoatl. This resulted in a split which eventually led to the fall of the Toltec civilization. It was the Toltecs, says Donald Yates, that came to the city of Rhoda, from which Tucson sprang 1,000 years later, the Rhoda which had developed into a major Indian trading city, to plunder and conquer, and they attempted to start a permanent civilization there using slaves they had acquired. And these warring Toltecs, says Yates, were led by Roman Jews. An article posted in the Arizona Daily Star, February 17, 1927, read this way. Bearded white man of Toltecs may be Israel III of artifact fame. And the article reads, Quetzalcoatl, the bearded white man whom the Toltec Indians of Mexico worshipped as their god, may have been Israel III, leader of the mysterious wanderers who are believed by some to have left the leaden artifacts recently unearthed near Tucson. That was the suggestion made by Mrs. Laura Coleman Ostrander, history teacher in the public schools of Tucson, in an address this afternoon before the American Association for the Advancement of Science. After tracing Roman Jewish history as a possible cause for migration of the unknown band, Mrs. Ostrander discussed the cultural impress of the wanderers upon the natives they encountered in America. Insofar as the Latin records show, the period of occupancy on this continent must have been about 125 years, Mrs. Ostrander said. It would be impossible for a civilized people of so much higher plane to have had contact with the natives whom the scribe designates as a people ruling widely, without having left some cultural impress. In the time allotted to me, I cannot consider in detail each possible influence, but may merely point the road of our investigation. The general consensus of opinion among archaeologists and ethnologists is that from 700 to 900 A.D., the Toltecs were ascended in the plateau sections of the Mid-Americas, moving from the north into Mexico and establishing their kingdom at Tolan. This date coincides closely, therefore, with the occupancy of these Roman Jewish immigrants who came to Tucson. To their god Quetzalcoatl, the bearded white man, who was first known as high priest and after death exalted and worshipped as their god, they attribute their forms of religion, government, and superior craftsmanship. In the Toltec sculpturing, he is always represented as bearded, with high forehead, long nose, and thin lips, and is often referred to as the long-nosed god. He wears a Roman tunic embroidered with crosses. In the Dresden Codex, Quetzalcoatl is described as tall, blue-eyed, and bearded, and in one of the drawings of the same manuscript, he is shown holding a snake in his hand. May not this bearded white man be the banished king, Israel III? 
Toltec tradition further relates that while their country was at the height of its prosperity under Quetzalcoatl's wise rule, there appeared one day before this high priest a bearded old man of his own race. Coming from the north, this visitor revealed what the Toltecs believed to be the will of the gods that he should return to his own people. This message he accepted as imperative and immediately started northward. He took with him some young noblemen as far as Cholula, where he sent them back, charging them to say that he would return at the head of a group of white men. Gradually news seeped through that Quetzalcoatl had died, but because of this message, the Aztecs, descendants of this ancient tribe, received the Spaniards as long-expected guests. A study of the Toltec religion shows it to be a mixture of Indian myth and Hebrew legends and religious rites, but fundamentally Hebraic. The Toltecs had a hereditary priesthood who crowned their kings. They burned incense, offered fresh fruits as substitute for human sacrifice, attributed to Quetzalcoatl, and many other rites pointed to a Hebraic source. The establishment of a civil calendar of 365 days, which was independent of the religious calendar, and leaving to the high priests to determine the time for intercalation of the extra days required to fill out the year, is an institution established at a meeting of the high priests at Tolan, called together by Quetzalcoatl, and agrees with the prerogative conferred upon the Sanhedrin by the Jews. The cross is found sculptured upon many temples and is seldom found without some representation of the serpent. Charnay Claude Joseph Desiree Charnay, while excavating a palpan, brought to light a Toltec house recalling in minute details the Roman impluvium. Another unearthed at Teotihuacan by the same party was almost identical to the first. Lord Kingsborough and Thomas Thorogood spent many years in trying to establish the fact that American Aborigines are descendants of the lost tribe of Israel. They found overwhelming evidence pointing to Hebrew cultural influence, but failed to establish their hypotheses. It must not be inferred that we assert that Israel III was the Toltec god Quetzalcoatl. We have simply raised the question of what became of him after he had liberated the Toltezus, the Indian chieftains. There are those among eminent ethnologists who believe that the American Aboriginal cultures are purely indigenous. Regarding the European background for the supposed expedition to Kalalis, the unknown land, Mrs. Ostrander said, From the death of Gregory in 604 to the 9th century, the years were dark and turbulent for the Jews. They could not own property, they were forced to pay heavy taxes, and they became wanderers, many of them. Their troubles were culminated by Ludwig II, who in 855 ordered all Italian Jews to leave the country by October 1st of that year. Even those who had been baptized as Christians were very similarly treated, for they were always suspected of pretending Christianity to avoid the heavy taxes levied upon Jews. It is not surprising then, but rather a confirmation of a fact that many of them left Rome and surrounding areas to seek new homes, and not surprising that considering their knowledge of navigation, they should have sought them in a strange land. One definite link with European history is the story told by one inscriber of the Hebrew ruler Benjaminus, who came from Seine to Rome, the bravest of the Gauls. He came to the assistance of the people to lay the foundation of the city. He built a wall around the city to resist the enemy. Benjamin, mighty in strength, 
he filled the multitude with religion. He was slain by the Thebans. The story of Benjamin is very probable. Since this inscription is dated 895, the incident related must have occurred during the 4th century, and it is during these years that the northern peoples began to overrun the Roman Empire, and during these centuries that the Jews and Greeks throughout the length and breadth of the Roman Empire were at constant warfare, and many Jews were killed by Thebans. If the European background is correct, let us hope to definitely locate Benjamin. From the European setting, we turn to the American. Mrs. Ostrander closed her address by stressing the importance of the Tucson discoveries and paying a tribute to the two men responsible for them. To date, the record carved upon these leaden, cruciform tablets comprises the earliest definite record of old and new world maritime intercommunication found in the new world. When excavations are complete, a monument made from the flood-washed boulders covering the place of burial will permanently commemorate the struggle of these Romans to found a nation while working against great odds and paying tribute to the men who, through their energy and purpose, have made this discovery known, C. E. Manier and Thomas W. Bent. These conclusions must be regarded as tentative since excavation is still in progress, but in its last analysis, this discovery must be regarded as opening a new chapter in the pre-Columbian history of America. And at this point, we're going to bring in a special guest, and this PR piece will set up the story for us. Longmont, Colorado, March 28, 2018. Since they came to light nearly a hundred years ago, the Tucson artifacts with their Latin and Hebrew writings have been branded a madman's forgeries, though no forger has been discovered. The University of Arizona refused to accept the hoard of inscribed religious objects from Calalus for the Arizona State Museum, calling them manufactured history. They went instead to the Pioneer Heritage Museum across the street as local curiosities in donated jewelry store cases. But the Arizona Historical Society Museum may have inadvertently acquired the most valuable historical documents in America, according to Donald N. Yates, a medievalist in Colorado. His new book from Panther's Lodge Publishers contains 346 pages and 30 illustrations, as well as original news reports and ancient texts relating to the artifacts. Linking the finds to the region's early turquoise mining, it refutes the refuters with a mass of evidence, ranging from Jewish merchant charters and Arizona mineral surveys to an Indonesian shipwreck dated 838 and dynastic records from pre-Columbian Mexico. The first Western Europeans evidently crossed the Pacific Ocean following an extension of the spice trade route to China by at least the year 560, the first date mentioned by the artifacts. Rhoda, the Toltec Indian trade center they took over, was approximately Tucson, then called the Red City, Chalapalan, the home of Quetzalcoatl, says Yates. During Passover that starts this week and on other high holy days, we can imagine Hebrew prayers drifting down at nightfall from the tombs of Jewish kings on Tumamak Hill. It's all rather incredible, says Teresa A. Panther Yates, president of Panther's Lodge. If one-tenth of the history recorded on the artifacts can be verified, it completely shatters what we thought we knew about Indians and early medieval Jews. And this is the perfect time to introduce Donald Yates, 
author, researcher, scholar, expert on Paleo-Latin inscriptions, and very likely the top authority on the Tucson crosses. Mr. Yates is a native of Cedartown, Georgia, and lives in Longmont, Colorado. He earned a Ph.D. in classical studies with an emphasis on medieval Latin language and literature at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's a member of the Medieval Academy of America. He has taught at St. John's University, University of Notre Dame, and Georgia Southern University, and has published a number of scholarly articles and books. He was a member of the International Committee on Latin Paleography, Paris, from 1978 to 1983. He studied ancient and medieval scripts, epigraphy, and paleography under Berta M. Marty, Daniel Sheeran, Christine I. Eder, Richard H. Rouse, and Leonard M. Boyle, O.P., Prefect of the Apostolic Vatican Library, among other leading figures in those disciplines. He worked at the Hill Monastic Manuscript Library in Collegeville, Minnesota, the world's largest repository of medieval texts on microfilm before heading a team of experts at the Medieval Institute at Notre Dame, Indiana, where he led efforts to develop standards adopted later internationally for cataloging and describing Latin manuscripts and the varieties of script in which they were produced. He has written numerous books, and you can check out his website at donaldyates.com. Yates spelled Y-A-T-E-S. Donald Yates, welcome to 1001 Heroes. Why don't you start by telling our listeners exactly what the Tucson artifacts are? Uh, they're a set of uh, lead artifacts and uh, with uh, medieval Latin inscriptions on them. So they're a very important example of uh, what's called epigraphy. Epigraphy is the study of writing on permanent surfaces. So if you go to Washington, D.C., into the National Archives, and you look over the doorway, you see the past is prologue in giant Roman capitals. That's epigraphy. And the Tucson artifacts uh, have a text in 8th and 9th century Latin, which was used to preserve laws and to preserve the history of uh, the, the Roman Republic and uh, all these uh, tablets were kept in a, a special temple. So it's a very specific script, and it's called uh, Roman Capitals. Uh, the, the Latin is uh, pretty good. It's a, a good example of medieval Latin. And more than that, writing was considered sacred. And so those who uh, pursued uh, epigraphy and kept the records were held to very high standards. And so uh, they had to prove that uh, they knew what they were doing. And so there was such a thing as self-sealing. So there's a numerical uh, code uh, in, in the writing. And uh, that uh, proves that uh, this was done by an official. We, we believe his name was Oliver because he signs himself O.L. And that uh, is what's known as a a notary uh, type of signature. So <laughs> these are fascinating, exciting uh, scripts from the 8th and 9th century. Uh, they were found in uh, Tucson. So, <laughs> you know, uh, they were found in the 1920s. A local man was had taken his family out for a drive, 
they were having a picnic, and they stopped at this curious uh, old lime kiln, and he used his, his cane. They saw something sticking out, and uh, it proved to be a, uh, a, a 50-pound uh, leaden object, which was then opened, and it's a double cross, and uh, that's, we call that the great cross. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to see how anybody who uh, is informed or knows about these things or has seen the artifacts. They've too often been dismissed through pictures, but I've seen them and studied them. I lived in Arizona, and they're perfectly preserved. They're complete. They're unaltered. They're straightforwardly composed in Latin, the official language of records during the Middle Ages. They don't have to be reconstructed, pieced together, deciphered, or dated. You know, everything. The people right there. who made these records made them for eternity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they made them for the eyes of God, and so, you know, they knew what they were doing. So uh, it's really the story. Uh, the records of a forgotten colony in Arizona, in medieval Arizona, in the dark ages of Arizona, and uh, they called their city Rhoda. Uh, that's a very well-known name uh, for a trade colony, Rhoda, uh, going back to classical antiquity, when Rhodes, the island of Rhodes in the Aegean, was a, a thriving center for world trade and uh, they had colonies in france and spain later on well then fast forward uh rhoda was a very popular name for a trade colony so that when the uh, arabs founded uh was now cairo the same merchants came along established a, a trade colony on the rip uh, on an island in the river and what did they call it? They called it Rhoda. Okay. And uh, we do know that the Arabs, who were much, much more sophisticated than uh, the Western Europeans at that time, wrote books of geography and books of commercial law and books about post offices. And they called these people the Rhodonites. Okay. Because they observed the Rhodonite law. And that's going back to, uh, you know, roads in antiquity. Everything fits together. Everything makes sense uh, if you just look. <laughs> One of the strangest things about the inscriptions, as I understand it, was the fact that there were Hebrew words included. Did that, did that tend yes, to, to balkanize this group into a certain area in terms of their origin? We think that... Uh, they were French Jews because they speak of uh, Gaul and Brittany uh, and Britain. Brittany and Britain had the same name at that time. And we think that they uh, ultimately that they came from Brittany, that they were uh, Breton Jews. And, uh, and Roman Oliver well. is a. Or, yes. Yeah. Now, that, yeah, Roman just meant European. Uh, right. Because after the fall of the Roman Empire, those provinces that were within the lines of the Roman Empire uh, continued to practice Roman law, and they called themselves Romans. 
At this time, Rome could refer to the Rome on the Tiber, but it could also refer to Constantinople because that was also called Rome. <laughs> okay. So we don't we don't really know, but they probably had bases uh, both in Rome, in Italy, and also uh, the Rome of the East, Byzantium, Constantinople, mm-hmm. and in people talk about the cross, they say, well, how can Jews use a cross? Charlemagne, and these people lived exactly at the same time as Charlemagne. They probably knew Charlemagne. And at that time, uh, Charlemagne and his successor, Louis the, the Pious, had Jews very highly placed in their in their government. And they were guiding the policy of uh, of the empire as far as finance and trade and everything else went. And then Char- Charlemagne also used the Jews to protect the pilgrimage places in the Holy Land. Uh, they provided the soldiers. We, we think of Jews now as, uh, you know, we have a very restricted uh, idea of Jews, but at that time, Jews and Christians effectively interfaced, and uh, this was before the First Crusade, which changed everything. And Jews, these Jews at least, were at the very seat of power and riches. They were the richest people in the world. Mm-hmm. They had uh, colonies in India, Babylon, uh, China, and evidently in uh, in Arizona in present day Mexico right yeah yes yeah people tend to forget that but that was Mexico until the mid 19th century yep. when we stole it <laughs> or purchased it well that was part of the Gadsden purchase yeah uh, Tucson was yeah now with the regard to the Smithsonian turning down these artifacts what authorities did they have on hand at that time? What was their excuse for turning them down or calling them hoaxes? Well, uh, that's that's an interesting story. Uh, they were never offered to the Smithsonian, but they were offered to the Arizona Museum. And the finders, which was the Bent family and the Muneer family, offered to sell the artifacts in 1926 to the museum, because they thought they were so important, for $26,000. And uh, the museum had a very pesky lawyer who did not believe in the uh, artifacts. I doubt whether he had ever even set eyes on them. And uh, he set out to prove that they were wrong. And at that time, the head of archaeology was Byron Cummings. He introduced archaeology to the West about 1920, first in Utah and then in Arizona. He's called the father of Southwestern archaeology, Byron Cummings. He always believed in the authenticity of the artifacts. And his uh, son-in-law was head of anthropology at the Smithsonian. And his son-in-law also championed the... uh, He didn't think they were as old as they claimed to be, but... He thought they were uh, genuine. So these two very respected archaeologists believed in the Tucson artifacts. The Bent family, they didn't understand them. They couldn't read them. But uh, Byron Cummings certainly could because he taught Latin. He had a classical 
medical education. <laughs> and archaeologists don't know how to read Latin anymore. <laughs> Evidently. Byron Cummings was president, but he was edged out over his uh, position by the uh, powers that be. Uni university was strapped for money. It didn't want to pay anything. And so it, it took the attitude that uh, we're only going to pay for the artifacts if they're genuine. And then it claimed that they were not genuine. They forced Byron Cummings to sign what's called the final statement. In 1929, they edged him out. They retired him early. And he was a giant of, of archaeology, you know, but they, they, they really, uh, they did a number on him. And so when he published his book, which was a summary of Southwestern archaeology in the 1950s, he published, he self-published it. You know, he paid for it himself from his oh. own foundation. Uh, it shows how he was sidelined and marginalized because of the stance that he took about the Tucson artifacts. And they just got it in their head that they were uh, wrong, that they were forged, even though no forger was ever found. And the worst was uh, Emil Hari. He, he became the uh, famous man <laughs> in southwestern archaeology after Byron Cummings. And he absolutely dug in his heels. He would not see the Bent family. He would uh, not even, his door was closed to them. So the artifacts did not go to the Arizona Museum as was intended, but they went to the Pioneer Museum uh, across the road, which is used for things of odd interest like uh, the sword of Zorro or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, there they're displayed in some crummy jewelry cabinets from from a jewelry store that were donated to the Historical Society. This is the Historical Society Museum. And uh, I believe that they are the most valuable artifacts in, in the United States and, uh, since they have Latin and uh, Hebrew, you know, they could be, they could well be, I mean, God forbid, uh, defaced or lost or stolen or whatever, because something like the lost Luna stone was defaced, because that's in Hebrew. How come there haven't been any efforts on the part of that museum to try and, and interest any of the larger museums so that museum could profit from that? It's because the, the artifacts have been damned. They've just been damned by history. And uh, the museum itself doesn't have the confidence or doesn't really believe in the artifacts. So you talk to, everybody has a different idea, you know. There's this, that, the other, you know, they're Masonic cowboys or whatever. Yeah, two know? drunk cowboys, right? But nobody, nobody has... has as the idea that they are, are what they claim to be. Let's say <laughs> they know, were. Let's say they were a hoax. And, and places on them. Just for a know? moment, let's say they were a hoax, uh, created. Oh, let's uh, throw a year out there. How about uh, how about nineteen twenty-two? What kind of knowledge would a person have to have, and skills would a person have to have, to create uh, the inscription, the story that went with these things? 
and the and the and the artifacts themselves. Well, that person would have to be prophetic for one thing. He would have to know in advance about all the medieval Latin dictionaries that would be written later <laughs> after he after he hoaxed uh, a text in medieval Latin. So it wasn't for available. Instance, word, it wasn't available in any text that anybody could have gotten their hands on. Well, there's se there's several words that don't even appear in dictionaries today. You know, they have to be researched. <laughs> One of those is uh, the word or, or uh, which is the same as our word or, uh, but at that time it also meant treasure, and uh, that word appears in the artifact where it says Jacob uh, became rich with treasure or, and. Uh, Today, uh, today, the place right right across the river from where the artifacts were found on Silver Bell Road, the Cañada del Oro, same word, okay. <laughs> and then uh, you know down down the way a little bit is a place called Toltec, okay. Toltecus is is the name of the Toltecs, and that's the first time it occurs in writing in these in these artifacts. So uh, <laughs> those things have only have only been verified subsequently by specialists in lexicography in medieval Latin lexicography. So if someone were hoaxing it, they'd have they'd have to have, have a a line into the future and a time machine <laughs> to either either to go back <laughs> to the to the original <laughs> time or to go forward. When, when we now understand uh, more. Did you also confirm uh, that there had been a Toltec civilization, remains of which found, oh, were oh, found yes. in the yeah. Tucson area? Oh, absolutely. These people were part of what's called the Chichimec Toltec uh, people. They uh, Toltec, first of all, just means the builder race, you know, the artisans, the trade people. And it can be applied to any period of Mexican history. Uh, it's usually applied to the period between Teotihuacan and the Aztecs. So like the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, uh, they call those people Toltecs. Well, well that, that just means civilized people, <laughs> Toltec, really. Right. It's based on the word, word for city. So these have always been the, the metropolitan people of of uh, the, the uh, Mexican world. And uh, they were stronger on the West Coast than on the East Coast, but they met in the middle, you know, in the Valley of Mexico. But this particular uh, group of traders uh, started out in about the sixth century. They started out in Michoacan at the mouth of the Bal Balsam River and uh, when they arrived there, now today, Purépech uh, is the language there, and that's that's different from the other Indian languages of Mexico. Uh, it has the closest affinity with Peruvian uh, languages, and so, you know, I I think civilization is safe to say that civilization kind of diffused up from uh, Peru on the west coast. It was a Pacific realm. Uh, civilization. The in Indians from India and from South 
East Asia have been visiting America since about the fourth century. And, and so whatever ships there were probably were Indian ships that brought people over. So uh, these, these were very sophisticated people. They were multinational. They included uh, Semitic people, Indian people, Chinese people, <laughs> Peruvian people, you know, and they were masters of, of trade and mining. And uh, they kept diffusing up. They would establish a colony in Arizona or the Southwest to take advantage of the mineral riches. And they pioneered the turquoise trade. And uh, so what... <laughs> The archaeologists, a few of them have studied the Chichimec Toltec. Uh, they happen to be Mexican ladies, you know, and so I don't think they get a lot of, of credit, but uh, uh, they're very scholarly, and they've put together the whole history of the Chichimec Toltec people who came up from Mexico and uh, developed the trade in the Southwest, their symbol is Cocapelli. Okay. Yep. But they, they had their legends. They have rock carvings marking their footsteps going all the way up uh, the, the West coast. And uh, they would farm out the different uh, towns. And so they f farmed out the, they were all kind of related too. they intermarried, you know, so, do you think those they, are ancestors uh, of the American Indians, or, or at least the Aboriginal American Indians, like the, like the Anasazi? Because isn't that where we were at least in North America well, here? That's where we some. see the that's where we see the first Cocopelli ancestors. Oh yeah, and uh, they, but they were very tightly bound and closely related to themselves. It, it's kind of like Fortune five hundred people. Uh -huh. You know, there's a lot of incest in fortune 500 companies <laughs> and uh and and these so these people had had uh jewish merchants arab merchants from babylon based in babylon they had uh, indian uh, they were from they were multinational you know and what they did was they went around developing mines and uh and colonies so they had a they had one governorship and they gave it to this group of so-called Roman Jews, let's, let's call them European Jews, okay? And so they took over and they farmed the, the province and they uh, mined the riches and they carried on the trade there until uh, the end of the ninth century, there was a catastrophe, uh, almost like a cataclysm. Uh, the archeologists call it the Great Flood. Right. It actually, Extended, yeah, extended over several years, uh, and what happened was, uh, you know, earthquakes and landslides and uh, a tsunami of mud came down the Santa Cruz River and buried everything under four to six uh, feet of uh, of mud. Plus, their mines would have collapsed. Many of them. And that would, and if that. Oh yeah. If that oh, was, no if, one knew where the mines were anymore. Yeah. After that. So after this catastrophe, the king uh, at that time, King Israel, or organized a migration, and they went to uh, Tula in Mexico. They moved. They just moved everybody down to Tula.
uh, and the, the king was 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 away already at that time. So he wasn't there and he wasn't affected, but he came back and picked up the pieces, I guess, and, and moved uh, the center of activity to Tula in the Valley of Mexico. Question for you. Pardon? What remained of the civilization there in Tucson? Who found it and and what remains were are there? There, there are ruins all over. Uh, Tucson was the one of the biggest cities in in the in North America at that time. The ruins are under under the campus of St. Mary's Hospital, and they're in the uh, Cañada del Ore, uh, the Romero ruins. That was, and right across the Santa Cruz River from Silverbell Road was one of the biggest so-called Hohokam ruins. And that's where we find the Hodges ruin. And uh, it dates to 500 to 700, uh, one of the most interesting records of these people, is a bearded Semitic figurine of a bearded uh, Semitic merchant wearing a keffiyeh. <laughs> then this was to... this was from 600 A.D. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was dated 500 to 700. It's probably a little later than that. And uh, is that in a museum? That, yeah, it's probably somewhere in a sub sub basement of the Arizona Museum. But it was published. Well, the, the point I'm trying to make for our listeners is. We've got civilizations there in in 500 A.D., 600 A.D., the one that the crosses made coming from 700 A.D. to 895 A.D. So you've got a period of 400 years. It might have been a couple of different trading cultures, but you've got a period of 400 years worth of civilization that has been found there. I'm just going to make this one point to our listeners. Those hoaxers must have been very, very busy not only creating those 30... <laughs> artifacts but creating uh the, creating the remains of 400 years of civilization in that area and it just makes you wonder how this has been denied for so long i guess we can say somehow we're still on the edge well, of somebody yeah. saying guess what folks there has been there has been civilization here ever since at least 500 AD in north america oh well they have a the earliest date on the artifacts is 560 all right so uh, that it, they weren't made in 560, but uh, these these people had a memory that stretched back 500 years, because they talk about the walls that were built to uh, protect the city of Rome under the Emperor Aurelius. Wow! So those two drunk cowboys, when they finished when they finished hammering out one of the last of those artifacts, probably the laburnum. They said, wait a minute, we've got to create an entire civilization here. How do we do this? I don't know. We'd better get busy. Hand me the whiskey. I guess that's how I guess that's how the the naysayers yeah. think we want this to go I, down. You know, I I don't really understand how things got turned around so wrong. <laughs> but uh, it's it's now coming up to about a hundred years and even though that was the early days of archaeology, you know, King Tut was just found you know, there's really no excuse for not recognizing these as as authentic. No, unless something else uh, is driving it. I don't know what. Uh, I, th I think there is something else driving it. Uh, and it's kind of like climate change. Uh, if you, if you uh, believe in climate change, you have to do something. Okay? <laughs> so if you believe in these 
ob artifacts, you have to change all of American history. The mining uh, cartel of uh, Arizona is very, very powerful. In fact, they fund uh, the University of Arizona and uh, the museum, Arizona Museum, and the Arizona Historical Society. And uh, can you imagine what, what would happen if, uh, if mines became, were turned into archaeological sites? Whew. <laughs> and, they had, and they had to send a team of archaeologists first before they uh, stole all the gold? Well, I don't, I don't think the mining industry wants this to happen. I don't think they want archaeologists poking around. I'm going to hit you with some of the really biggest and roughest and toughest reasons that people have given that these artifacts cannot possibly be genuine and see if you can possibly come up with answers. Number one, okay. it, it has been said that the crosses are old iron objects found outside of Tucson in 1924. How would you answer that? Well, they're not iron. They're lead. I mean, some graduate student must have written that. It comes from the first sentence of the description of the Tucson artifacts in the Arizona Historical Society's catalog, which is published on the World Wide Web. That's true. Yeah, I mean, the disservice starts with calling them objects. You know, objects are found. Objects are lost. Objects are discarded. But these are artifacts. Hello? And then, you know, the newspapers picked it up and they said relics. They're not relics. They're records. So this same person probably said, well, okay, maybe they're lead, but they're made of common typographer's lead. That has been proven with uh, lead isotopes that the lead came from the Yuma mine, which is about uh, uh, 10 miles away from the find site. And there's a dossier at the Arizona Historical Society that says that two or maybe three merry cowboys cooked the whole hoax up on their kitchen stove to puzzle newspaper reporters. I have, I have read that dossier, and uh, uh, I mean, I don't think we need, we need science fiction. Just go to the historical society that families have there. Yeah, it sounds like that would be pretty interesting. I would like to be a fly on the wall with when the cowboys were cooking <laughs> these things up. That's some good whiskey. They were made by a single mad forger or a small party of madmen. Now, that's one you could talk about for a while if you were one of the scientists out there in Arizona. Was it a single guy or was it a small party of mad guys? Yeah, they tried to pin it. They tried to pin it on this poor Mexican fellow uh, who had an interest in art. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, they didn't build a very successful case. So that was one weekend's. Uh, story in the Arizona Star. Well, that brings uh, up another subject, the Michigan tablets. What do you know about those? Do you think that was well, the same I, civilization I or different one? Oh, no, this is a different one. Uh, those were Gnostic people from uh, the Middle East who uh, settled in, in Michigan and left 10,000 to 30,000 tablets or objects all over the state of Michigan. There's not one county that doesn't have these. They were found about 1900. They were brought to people's attention. Of course, they had to be fake. And the way it works is uh, this, this object is fake because the last object was fake. 
and you trace all that back <laughs> and then you get to something like the bat creek stone of course it's fake too uh, what is the bat creek some, stone could you explain that one for our listeners bat stone is uh a hebrew in, inscription on uh, that was found in a tomb uh, in Cherokee country, and it says a, a star for Israel, a star for the Jews. And it's believed to refer to Bar Kokhba, who's the leader of the revolt in Palestine, whose followers, according to traditional stories, went to the extreme west. Well, that'd be North America. I'm looking at a map right now that shows the Tucson area and the number of uh, uh, archaeological digs that occurred in that area. And, of course, one is Hodges Ruin. Could you kind of explain, yes. is, is, is Tucson unique in terms of that being a center of very early civilization? Are there other cities uh, in the southwest like that? Or is this pretty much uh, a one-off? Oh, no. Uh, there are cities all over the southwest uh, and at one one point uh, the geography was much different to, to take one example uh, you know southern california was was a lake you know yeah, salt, uh, leading into salt and sea. To the, yeah 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 and uh, that's the remains of a lake system that went all the way to santa fe Wherever people have been able to go, they've gone. <laughs> but the attraction was in the mineral riches as well. And that's why these people came up. The Toltec Chichimec came up from Mexico. But, uh, I mean, to give you an example of evidence of the ancient civilizations around Tucson, there was in 1919, uh, the Arizona Star published a Sunday magazine that was written by Robert F. Gilder, he was a journalist and an archaeologist. He was also a painter, and uh, he, he was friends with Byron Cummings, whose name I mentioned before, who was head of the newly established Department of Archaeology at the University of Arizona. He was also director of the Arizona State Museum. Robert Gilder would spend his, spend his winters in the Tucson area, and so one, one fine day, he went out with Byron Cummings, and they climbed Tumamoc Hill, uh, which is an amazing site, uh, which is like the citadel or the fortress uh, overlooking the ring of mountains around uh, Tucson. And um, now, now it has the uh, desert laboratory, but it has never been excavated. Uh, but at that time... They, they could do things they can't do now <laughs> since uh, since we have government. And so uh, they did their own excavation. They ex excavated around in the desert uh, 47 different ruin sites. Now most, yeah. now most of them are under under trailer parks or luxury condos or whatever, you yeah. know. But uh, back then, and uh, they speculated that uh, this was a, a military installation at one time because of the walls and all and the ruins, but that the history of the place went back to the third century BC. That was 1919 before we learned what we were supposed to believe when people were objective. <laughs> <laughs>
say it. And the book is the book is The Merchants of Rhoda. The book is titled Merchant Adventurer Kings of Rhoda. Yeah. The Lost World of the Tucson Artifacts. Yeah. By Donald Yates. And thank you. That's one it's one heck of a book. I've read excerpts of it. Those that I can get a hold of online. And and you have filled in a lot of the blanks oh, here today. It's probably overkill. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was trained to uh, dot my I's and cross my T's uh, well, I, as I, a uh, classical scholar. I just want to thank you so much. I think the subject is fascinating here. You've got you've got not only this civilization, but other civilizations pre-Columbus. And we just seem to be so flat and dry with our history books that everything seems to start when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But in actuality, there's been a whole heck of a lot going on uh, here in North America for the past 1,500 years or so. And it's just fascinating to hear to hear your take. And I don't think there's there's not going to be too many guys alive right now with the experience that you have that is required to determine that these Tucson artifacts are genuine. I think you're the guy, you're the go-to guy right now with regard to that. If anybody out there is listening who feels that they can um, that they can uh, make any inroads here with regard to uh, letting more people know that th these artifacts are definitely one of the most important pieces of American history. Uh, please, please have at it. And Donald Yates is your go-to guy. I, you know, I, I found that uh, the artifacts pretty much, even though they're in Latin and uh, they're kind of obscure, they pretty much speak for themselves. They make uh, an impression. And uh, I, can't, I can't really understand those who declare them to be forgeries uh, unless, uh, you know, they, they're just hell-bent on, on pursuing a certain version of history. And exactly what, what was the name again of the museum that they are now in for those who are traveling out in well, Arizona? It's the uh, Arizona Historical Society Museum on 2nd Street and across from the university in Tucson. Okay. Donald, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. It's been a thrill being able to discuss this. It's a rarity. It's something that's true. It's something more people need to know about. So thanks for, thanks for solving uh, what some people still call well, a mystery. Thank, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. There definitely was a civilization in North America for at least 125 years in the area we now call Tucson, Arizona, a Roman Hebrew civilization. And, of course, the question is, when will science ever catch up? Thanks for joining us.